welcome to the very first episode of a project that I like to call Who the Hell Knew? I'm so excited to kick off my first podcast with a blockbuster guest. I am Amta Krishnia and today with me is my friend, my colleague and someone whom I like to refer to as the poster child of inclusion in diversity. Her name is Julie Omran. She comes from a mixed religion background. She's part of the LGBTQ community and is also someone who has taken a very non-traditional career path. Very soon, we'll talk about all of this. But first, hi, Julie. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, Mamta. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. What an introduction. Uh, I'm going to have you write all my copy for my <laughs> website, all my marketing material. You flatter me. Thank you. But uh, thank you so much. Um, so, Julie, I would love to start by hearing a little bit about your story and want to start all the way from the beginning, from the time, uh, you know, when you were given a choice as a child to decide between being a Muslim and a Christian. What was that experience like? At the time, my brother and, and, and me, we were young. I suppose we didn't really give it too much thought. Uh, I was about seven. He was five. And... Um, now looking back, obviously that's quite an unorthodox decision to have to make when you're so young. For some context, uh, my father and mother married in the late 60s um, when um, inter-religious marriages in the U.S. were still pretty unconventional. So she is a, a Roman Catholic, he was a Muslim, and uh, they got married in a church. Um, and they, they had a, a wonderful marriage that lasted uh, 35 years, and he, he passed away. When, when they were younger adults, I would describe them as being much more secular than as, as they aged and, and became more religious as they got older, which happens to a lot, of, a lot of people. So in their young adulthood with young kids, they didn't want to... They didn't want to... Uh, uh, they wanted to defer that decision to one another and to be polite with each other. They were still relatively young in their marriage. And so the conversation apparently went like this from my mom, honey, it's okay, they can be Muslim, no problem. I'll continue going to church and you can take them to uh, the mosque. And my dad would reply, oh, don't be silly. Oh, come on, it's okay, they can be a Catholic. I'll, 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 I won't convert, I'll con continue to be Muslim and, and uh, they'll, they'll be Catholic and I'm o totally okay with that. They didn't want to hurt each other's feelings, so they put the decision to their two young children. <laughs> so we, they gave us a choice. It's like the Goldilocks and the three bowls of porridge, right? They took us to the mosque and to the, the class with all the other Muslim kids. And unfortunately, we didn't know Arabic at the time. We were lighter skin uh, colored than the other kids. So we just didn't feel immediately like we were, we were um, fully included and that we fit in. And so then the next bowl of porridge was Catholic school. And immediately, we, were, we assimilated just immediately, right? Lots of um, predominantly white kids, um, some, some Asian. Uh, all spoke English. Mm -hmm. So we just gravitated towards that, that second choice. Mm -hmm. So that just became our de facto choice. choice. Do, you, do you feel like having had the choice 
made you more liberal, you know, not just in context of this decision, but overall? Versus if you were asked to, you know, pick a certain direction that would have potentially not allowed you to be as liberal as, you know, you are today. Uh, I bet you that that played some part in mm-hmm. how, how I view myself. And uh, I like to describe myself as multicultural. Um, and really what that means is celebrating every single day of my life, people from all walks of life. Um, but I'd have to say it's a great it's a great point you're making that that early decision, if you want to really call it a decision that we made, put me on a path toward a, a, a lifelong journey of learning about other other cultures and ethnicities. That's wonderful and religions. Okay. That's wonderful. I always talk about being a global citizen, and I, I think you fit right in <laughs> to that concept. <laughs> I'd like, to, like to think so. <laughs> So what was what was the day or or moment when you had a self realization that you know diversity matters? I think that it was actually when I left Houston, Texas, um, as an adult, and went to Seattle, which is by most accounts very um, left of center in terms of politics city in the U.S. But what I mean by that is, um, in terms of multicultural ethnicity, um, the population makeup in Seattle is quite different from Houston. And and this might blow some people's minds who don't know much about Houston. It is one of the most diverse cities in America, if not the most diverse city in America. It's a port town. I grew up, my, my brother and me, we both, my brother and I grew up with friends from uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, uh, Thailand, uh, Korea, I mention all these Asian countries because we can now identify immediately by looking at someone and by their last name, their first name, which Asian country, uh, if, we, if we hadn't lived in Houston, I don't, I don't know if that would have happened. We had friends from South America, Mexico, um, you name it, 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 was, it was like a UN in our school or the United Colors of Benetton, for those of those folks from the 80s who remember the ads of all the different yeah. nationalities represented. But when, when, when I moved to Seattle in my adulthood, um, I, I, it was a paradox or ironic that I was moving to what m- many considered stereotypically to be a more um, multicultural, um, you know, coastal city, more cosmopolitan, if you will, and I was missing that the heterogeneous makeup mm-hmm. of the population. Lots of whites um, uh, and, and, I mean, really, Asians, whites, there's transplants from Asia, um, Southeast Asia. But I was missing um, the diversity so, from Houston. So it sounds like for you, Julie, um, really what did the trick in, in that self-realization of diversity matters was lack of it. Because uh, you had the privilege growing up of being part of a community that was extremely diverse, you know, heterogeneous, as you rightly put it. And then you went away from that and you saw the different side of the world where it didn't exist. And I, and I specifically say privilege because a lot of times people don't have the opportunity to go from 
one experience to another to be able to kind of see both sides of the coin. They're either part of the world where there is no diversity or they're part of the world where there is huge amount of diversity that they're not able to see the difference in what it does to the you know final outcome. So, That's would right. Would that be right? I, uh, absolutely right. And I, I take it for granted. I, I you know wholeheartedly admit that and recognize I, I, I took my childhood for granted. I just figured, oh, every child in America has uh, this type of diverse uh, gang of friends, right? I just just thought that's just the norm, and and uh, obviously that's not the case. So um, yeah, well put. Oh, wonderful. So yeah. I, I would say, like for a lot of folks who might be looking to really understand diversity, they should try to go find a moment or a place or a space that is different from their current setup to truly be able to realize, you know, the distinction between the two. Absolutely, um, and it doesn't require taking a trip even to Houston, just, <laughs> you know, just expanding our, your, your uh, radius, you know, traveling to another community uh, that's not too far by and um, meeting folks, getting outside of your comfort zone. Comfort zone, yeah, absolutely. Um, awesome. So I want to talk about maybe uh, you know different side of diversity, and a lot of people don't really talk about this, but I feel like it is super valuable. Um, and and I'm referring specifically to the non-traditional career path that you took, Julie. Um, last time we spoke, you shared a very interesting story about having gone from a big corporate management consulting company that spans across the globe to a small startup, and you had some very interesting learnings from that experience. Uh, and what that meant uh, in terms of a diverse perspective and outlook that you took away. So I would love to hear a little bit about that sure. and share that with others. Sure. Uh, I had spent about five years in a large global consulting firm, um, and this was after um, a career in music. And I, I mentioned the career in music because it's um, it'll it'll show a little bit of irony as we progress down my career path here. And I, and I believe before you went into the music industry, you also had an educational background in anthropology, which is that's right. very different, right? That's like, true, that's yeah. true. So if we, if we move from the childhood experiences we were just talking about with all the diversity and multiculturalism and religion, obviously that, uh, that colored my career choices and so when I was trying to pick a major in in university anthropology caught my eye because it it seemed like this is just something that I could be really good at and I would ace all my exams and get a 4.0 GPA <laughs> or close to it but of course I just love learning more about the peoples of Africa and India and so my undergraduate is in anthropology uh, as I was approaching graduation I realized this is, I won't make much money here, I'll be a poor professor, I might feel fulfilled, um, but I, like a lot of my peers, was feeling a bit materialistic, put it that way, and I, I love music too. My friends have tapped me to, to instead of getting my master's, to, to get on the road with a band, and so I, I did that for several years. And in 2005, after doing lots of recording, and we were on MTV, and we were touring the US, I got totally burnt out and decided I need to shift gears a little bit and do something a little more chill. 
I'm going to go into consulting. So <laughs> <Funny> choice. <laughs> so I, I, I joined this, this big consulting firm and was there for five years where I was able to bring what I learned in academia, of course, and then the, the creative side of me that was cultivated in all my musicianship to this role and had a, a very satisfying five years. It was, it was a great, great time, met a lot of great people. Um, but when, when you are part of a big company like that, whether it's consulting or with, whether you're in industry consulting, these companies tend, tend to have pretty deep hierarchical organizational structures. And over time, I didn't know it at the time, but over those five years, I was becoming my mind was becoming oriented that way. Uh, if you can imagine the stereotypical band music m musical group hanging out, there's not much hierarchy. They're hanging out, they're playing music, they're having a good time, they're making their audience feel good. There may be some some folks who have more power than others in the band, but it's a flat organization, right? For the most part, in this in this consulting firm. Um, we were trained as consultants to respect uh, hierarchy, command and control, always have, use a framework, use a methodology, use process. That's what the client is paying you the big bucks for. And so after five years of doing this, um, I wanted to try something different. And there was an opportunity to join a, a startup, and I did. And when I exited the big consulting firm and pivoted to the startup, I thought that much of the value I was bringing was in my five years of methodologies and frameworks and processes. And being number 25 in this, in this very young startup, I, and this is my first startup, I didn't realize that with early stage companies, it's not about optimizing processes. The investors don't care about that. All they care about is can you scale quickly and not just your operations, but your customer base, your recurring revenue. Uh, that's what they cared about. And that was a lesson that was tough for me to learn. It was hard for me to let go of what I had, the baggage, baggage if you will, that I had built up over those years at this big firm. Um, to be able to pivot and do something differently, to hear the feedback of my startup cohorts saying, Julie, you, you are so well-intentioned, but we don't need all of this. Maybe in five years when the company is on a different part of its maturity curve, but not now. We just need your beautiful smile and your amazing relationship building capabilities. Go out there, sell our product, and keep our customers happy. I can vouch for the beautiful smile, 100%. Oh, that's sweet. I wasn't fishing for a compliment, by the way. But, but I want to make sure everybody knows. Um, so it's really interesting. And I got so intrigued when we first talked about this um, because there's so distinctive experiences and approach, right? Almost like if you were put, if you were to put them on a scale, they're like different ends of that spectrum. Um, Julie, how has that you know, having lived through two very different disparate experiences helped you, you know, going forward in your career. And, and I want to kind of like take that learning away because I think it's really important. It's really important to know, you know, what is the goal or the outcome 
before you decide your approach. Uh, so I'm really, really interested to know, like, how have those two experiences, which are so different from each other, helped you going forward, you know, in your career since, since the startup days? I, I love that question because I, I believe that through my own experience, human beings are constantly changing. We hear the old adage, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I don't believe that based on my own experience, that when we in particular put ourselves out there in situations that uh, we may think are similar or we may think they're different, but every time we try something new, even if you're moving from one company to another, one city to another, um, we, we make ourselves vulnerable. And uh, that's exactly what happened to me in, in my career choices and where I was, where I was moving toward. Um, at the time when this is happening, when it was happening to me, it was a blow to my ego. Every, every pivot I've made when I, for instance, moved from music to consulting, that was a very difficult change for me. When I did it, like actually switching gears and moving to Seattle and, and embarking on this new career, it seemed really fun. There was a sense of euphoria. But then I quickly realized, no one cares about you, Julie, as being the center of attention anymore. You used to be the lead singer in this band, and you were used to having the spotlight on you all the time, but that's not what consulting is about anymore for you. Now it's your job to shine the spotlight on your client. That was very difficult for me. That was a real blow to my ego. But through the five years I spent consulting, I learned how important it is to step away from the, the microphone and let someone else speak and support that person. So when I as I progressed to the startup, I'd already felt what it was like to have a blow to the ego, right? When I got the feedback, Julie, you need to just streamline, stop overthinking it, stop over engineering it, it was another blow to the ego. But with this pattern now of every couple of years, just making sure I put myself out there, I've gotten to a point now where I know how it feels, the sting of getting feedback, and then the, the rapid next set of emotions, which is gratitude. I feel such gratitude that someone would even come to me, take the time and give me feedback. Um, so now, today, I seek out companies, whether I'm getting a paycheck from them or I'm consulting for them, I seek out companies that have cultures of feedback, where when we talk about inclusion, which I, I believe we may get to later, feedback is, should just be way up there on the list of priorities uh, in the workplace, at home, amongst friends. Um, that, just to answer your question succinctly, be, over time, putting myself out there thickened my skin or conditioned me to be able to have a completely open mind and be open to whatever comes my way so that I can learn from it and so that I can become a better 
better human being. So it sounds like you've become very comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's right. <laughs> that's I right. I think that's a great position to be in because you're like, I know I'm going to be uncomfortable, but I'm prepared for it. So absolutely, uh, that's fantastic. And is that why you kind of like came back to consulting? Because I know currently you're consulting and that gives you the opportunity to go from place to place and like experience change. Is that's, that why you pivoted back? That's right. I missed consulting. Um, I my friends joke with me that uh, I just have a, a horrible uh, ability to focus on one thing for, for very long. And so consulting uh, nurtures that tendency in me. Uh, so, you know, I love having short projects where I can just jump in and add a lot of value and get out or jump in, add value and continue working with a client, of course. Um, but yes, that, that would be correct. I, I absolutely love putting myself out there and learning new things. and Wonderful. People expect me to know it all, and as they get to know me, they realize, oh, she's she's just another human being. Hey, it's all good. We just have to wake it until we make it. That's right. <laughs> fake it until you make it. And the good news is the company that we currently work at like focuses a lot on feedback, and there's a lot of investment in you know, how to do that right uh, in the benefit of like all parties, so that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that story, Julie. Um, so we talked a little bit about your mixed religion background. We pivoted to your non-traditional career path. I want to now shift gears a little bit and talk about um, a topic that is actually being talked about pretty widely. Um, and I'm actually very excited that it is it is something that is not just driving awareness anymore, but actually driving a lot of action. So I want to touch upon that a little bit and hear your perspective. And this is about driving gender parity in the workplace. Um, I want to share like quick data on that and then I want to hear your perspective on what do you think you know uh, we all can do on a day-to-day -day basis to move the needle like even if it is by an inch. Uh, but the data that I wanted to reference, this is um, you know, McKinsey's report where they talked to 366 public companies and found that racial diversity in management, the companies that actually had them, drove 35% higher returns as compared to industry mean. And I want to re-emphasize, this is diversity in ethnic and racial backgrounds. And then when we look at companies that have you know, higher gender diversity within their upper management, that drove 15% more likely returns than industry means. So clearly there's data out there, um, but if we look at how far away we are, um, World Economic Forum re recently quoted that before we can get to a stage where we have, you know, actually achieved gender parity, that's about 200 years away. So while we know that it's not there yet, the pathway to that seems so far away, which is really interesting to me and, and definitely something for me to think about a lot. But I want to hear about your perspective and on, on what that means and any thoughts and ideas you might have on what everyone can do in driving towards that goal. I'm going to assume that that 200-year horizon is based on the current rate of change. So then you're, you're nodding your head yes. So then your question about what we can do or you know, what my advice would be, your thoughts around uh, micro actions that we can take to hopefully mm -hmm. increase the rate, right? Yeah. So maybe we can even see this in our lifetimes, right? Absolutely. So, and, and thanks for the, the stats there. I, I, I know it's, it's hard to quantify 
the business case, if you will, for gender parity. So it, it makes sense to gravitate towards financial metrics like you did. And I'm not surprised to hear what you had shared. And I think I've, I've seen something similar to that before. It, you know, it, it really, it boils down to looking at where the family is. I'll, I'll, I'll put it that way. The family or even the individual is today in uh, Western, the Western world, I'll say, you know, the first world, so to speak, that we're, we are at a point where there are socioeconomic factors that have been in play for decades now that just require, just require gender parity. And, and, and I know we don't have hours and hours to talk about this topic, but just to give you a sense of what, what I mean is that we have, uh, Families, young families starting off um, alone. They're not part of an extended family more and more these days. They're on their own. So the traditional support systems they used to have just aren't there yet. Or just those support systems are not there anymore like they used to be. So there, these young families are on an island on their own trying to build families. Gender parity just has to be there from an economic standpoint and from a socio uh, support standpoint. And so really what I'm getting there is it's, I'm, I'm looking at this from a pragmatic point of view. It just has to happen in order to maintain the fabric of our society. Um, uh, you know, beyond that, it's a, it's a moral question. Um, you know, we ask so much of ourselves as women, we ask, so much of other women, um, the the media for years and years have uh, talked about or, or echoed this persona of the woman doing everything. Growing up in the 70s, I remember this this seductive perfume called Angeli. I think that's what it was called. I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in a pan. And never, never, never let you forget you're a man, cause I'm a woman, Angeli. Back in the 70s, these, these were the early messages that were being broadcast out to women. And women, it was resonating with women. And I was a young, I was a girl, and I still remember that ad. And I grew up thinking, I can bring home the bacon, and I can go get a job and, and make money and then please my man, right? And, and do all the traditionally matriarchal uh, roles and responsibilities that my mom and grandma did. So, you know, when it comes to gender parity, we, we just have to do it. It's an imperative. To answer your question about micro steps, um, I think we are, we're moving past this um, time maybe in the 80s and 90s where there was backstabbing and women not looking out for women. I'm sure it still happens. I'm seeing it much less, but I think we still have, uh, we still have a responsibility to our fellow women. I'm speaking to the ladies out there to seek out, like make sure that the women around you are taken care of. Just proactively checking in uh, proactively we were talking about the feedback of culture giving proactive feedback mm -hmm. and usually that's a lot easier when you filled up that person's love bank 
this is a concept from um, another researcher uh, around human relationships and just cultivating the relationship to the point where at any moment you could just drop in, check in and say, hey, I want to give you some feedback about that presentation you gave mm-hmm. or the outreach work you're doing in this community. And uh, at, in this meeting, you had this great idea and you let, you let a, uh, this male member of our team claim it as his own. It was, it was your idea. Um, so I, I think that's one easy hack, if you will, or tweak we can do right now, like today, is just sit down for five minutes and think about the women in your life, your mother, your daughter, whoever, and check in and see how can I help them. That's, that's super cool. Um, and I want to kind of share the experience a few minutes before we started kind of having this conversation where you looked out for me and you taught me some like simple ways of modulating my voice so that you know it's it's stronger as it is heard by others but also in the recording etc so thank you julie i feel like you're awesome. already doing that and demonstrating that um right. so I, I feel like now i can tie the two pieces together and i and, and it's already helping me so thank oh, you for thank you for doing that awesome uh, and i'll also add to Another another tweak or hack or in some cases it's it's actually a new skill set mm-hmm. for some people is negotiation skills because when we're talking about gender parity most times we're we're not just talking about position we're talking about pay and both go hand in hand and in this world <laughs> it really is uh, all about what you can negotiate for yourself and. Uh, so I'm sure there are studies out there that show that, um, in fact, we know there are studies that show that uh, women tend to negotiate less when presented an offer for mm-hmm. a job. So there are a couple of things there. There's a mentality or mindset shift that needs to happen with women, and, and that's not easy because a lot of that can be very cultural too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other, the other part of it is, is practice. Is developing the muscle, developing the skill set. This goes back to my earlier hack idea, tweak idea about um, reaching out to your fellow women colleagues and practicing negotiation mm. and doing role play. Yeah. And don't wait until just the night of the interview. You should just become like you go work out a few times it's a week. Second nature. You should just be yeah. practicing negotiations. Not just for your job, it could be for anything. You're gonna buy a house or buy a car. Get comfortable with negotiating. This is fantastic, and I think this could be a great uh, input for our WLN team who is seeking more ideas. So I feel like this could be a fantastic input for them. Um, So I'll be sure to take this back to them. Um, Awesome, Julie. So I wanna kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about the other side of the same coin. So there's a lot of talk in the industry and you know in the market about driving towards diversity. But one thing that has not been talked a lot about is once you have you know acquired or achieved diversity in a certain setting, whether that's professional, personal, um, how do you make sure that all of these different and diverse perspectives and people from different backgrounds, you know, ethnic um, 
situations are included in a way that they actually feel at home and, and they're able to bring their whole selves to that um, setting. So um, I wanted to ask you, was there an incident where where you didn't feel included? And maybe we can start with you know professional setting. And uh, what did you do to handle that situation? And what ideas and thoughts you might have for others who might be going through that? Because I know I, I'm pretty confident this happens a lot. Um, and sometimes people feel like they they want to quit and go away from that situation as opposed to trying to like work towards solving for it. So I therefore I wanted to touch upon that and, and talk about was there a situation where you didn't feel included and what what did you do um, about it? I, I love this question. Um, it's happened many times in my life and you know when these things happen I think it's good to give the other party or parties the benefit of the doubt. There's probably in most cases not malintent involved. Um, but I'll. You're right. It's never right. malintent. I think it's just lack of knowledge and awareness more than anything else. Yeah, I think you're right. I'll, I'll share one experience I had at a consulting firm where I I was hired, I was a new hire as part of the leadership team, and saw a segregation, if you will, of people on a big open space floor in the office, segregated by whether or not they were on the leadership team. And um, I, I walked in that first day and all of my fellow quote-unquote leaders, the executives that I was part of, were sitting in this one group and then this one part of the room divided by a bookshelf and the other part were the, the, the non-leaders. And immediately I, I felt, even though I was not, I was on the other side of it, but I, I felt such extreme empathy um, because in my name, my title, it's, my title is consultant, right? And at that time, uh, my, t my title was consultant too, but I was part of the leadership team. So I was torn and I didn't know what to do on my first day. And no one said, Julie, sit over here, right? It was just one of those uh, unwritten rules. Anyone could have sat anywhere. People were welcome to sit on either side of the, the bookshelf. And so how did, I, how did I handle that? I sat with the non-leadership team. And after day three, a gentleman um, who I hadn't met up until that moment made a comment about it. It's like, you're pretty cool. You're sitting with us. So, um, I, I mentioned this to my fellow leaders and um, ever since then, the bookshelf is still there, but uh, what has changed, which is really nice, is leaders move around more and they bring their laptops and they sit with the consultants and they just go all over the place and they're not in one place very long. So this, the open door policy this firm had 
they're really living it every day by just moving around and just being right there with the consultants. That's, yeah. that's so phenomenal. And I, and I say phenomenal because a simple action drove such a big change. And, and I say that because, you know, as you think about like growing in your careers, it's so much easier for a leader to take action to drive the right kind of change as opposed to, you know, someone who's just starting off in their career because yes. they, they don't know like what is the full spectrum of possibilities and they're still a sponge in absorbing and absorbing and listening. And if they see and absorb the right things and they are going to be you know, exuberating the same behaviors when once they grow up into a leadership role. So this is so phenomenal, such a simple action, but such a major, uh, you know, change that it drove. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I'm glad you, you think so. Thank you so much for talking to me. I feel like I have so much more that I want to discuss with you. So I'm pretty sure I'll be reaching back out to you you know, asking for further conversations that I'd like to, you know, have with you and, and discuss and go deeper. I'd, I'd love to do it. Thank you, Mamta. This is really fun. Appreciate it.